2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Before you read this, I hope, I hope it all comes together for you. Hope that you always recognize that the worship service is always ordered after the sermon text. So if that's uh, an epiphany of sorts for any of you, listen for it. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio uh, went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and, and more. Symbols. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because of the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the house of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, Christ Central. It is good to be in the house of the Lord as a brother D shared with us this morning. And if you're joining us online, we're glad that you could join us uh, at home as well. We praise God that we're able to do this, um, not only to be able to gather together in a social distance manner like this, but to be able to worship from home as our technology and our, our team has worked very hard behind the scene to make this possible. So we're so glad that we could join to worship our God this morning. If you're new, visiting us for the first time or finding us online for the first time, we're glad you could join us, uh, and we're glad that you could find out more about us. Please do connect with us. We'd love to share about what God is doing in our church. Uh, my name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at 
uh, Christ Central Church. And it's my privilege to continue our sermon series in 2 Samuel 6. And as we do that, please do continue to pray for our, our Brown family as we remember them during this time as well. For those of us who were with us last week, we looked at King David's first 100 days of being a king of Israel after waiting for number of years for him to become a king. And this week, we turn to chapter 6, and David is now moving forward in his kingship of not only making Jerusalem his political as well as military capital of his kingdom, but now as he sets his kingdom in the city of David, Jerusalem, he wants to make this city a spiritual capital as well. And how, he, how does he go about doing that? He does that by bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that was lost to Israelites before, now bringing it back to the capital city as his first step. And that's what this chapter 6 covers. And this chapter 6 displays to us all that David goes in bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord back to Jerusalem, back where it belonged. This may come to you as a shock, and you may wonder why, but I am not much of a dancer. I know it's shocking for you. Actually, you probably noticed that I'm not, right? Just look at, if you look at my social media page, uh, my son loves to dance, and I dance like him. Not to say that's anything bad, but... Um, so I remember when I got married, the idea of moving my body to the, the beat of the music made me nervous more than anything else. Uh, I realized that not only I was going to dance at the wedding, but for the traditional first dance, I'm the only one that, along with my wife, that will be dancing, and all the eyes will be cast upon me as I dance with my wife. And I realized, well, in order for me to, not, to make a fool of myself, I need to learn how to dance. So what did I do? Being a problem solver that I am, I decided to look it up. Look up on the internet to teach me how to dance, thinking if I read it enough, if I study enough, I'll be able to dance well on the floor. So I looked up what it means to dance well, and according to mentalfloss.com, right, mentalfloss is our, the expert of dancing at this point, it says, tap, first step is tap into your core. It says, find your neutral pelvis. You know what that is? I have no idea what that was. But they say that you're born with it by age two, and that's why you see all these kids dancing. It says you have them. Find it. How? They don't tell you how. They say you just have it, right? Number two is to warm up, to stretch. They're like, stretch your arms. Why? You want to make big movements. So they say stretch your neutral pelvis, whatever that is. Stretch that so you're ready to dance. And the third step is Shift your body left and right. Okay, I was like, I got that. That's easy, right? Moving your body left and right. They don't tell you exactly how to do that. Some, some of you are more gifted at that. I actually saw a couple of you just being able to do that. I cannot. I don't know what that is. And the final step they tell you what to do is simply dance. Just do it. Just dance. How did I do that day after I tried to find my inner pelvis, whatever it may be? to stretch out whatever it can be and move my weight back and forth. I'll tell you more about how I did later in the sermon. But today's text talks about another person that's dancing. 
That's what we read in verse 14, right? It says, and David danced before the Lord. The king of Israel danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing an in a linen ephod. And what makes him dance like this? We see in verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark was coming, David gets to dance with all his might. And before we get to the dancing part, and we will surely see more of what it means to dance next week, David learns a little bit more about who he's dancing for and who he's dancing with. As he learns to dance, a dance to remember for his lifetime, he gets to learn a little bit more about who God is, his dance partner, as he learns to dance before God. And three things we see is that he learned that God, his dance partner, is too hot to handle. It also, he's also too close for comfort, and he's also too good to be true. And first thing that we see is that David learns that God is too hot to handle as his dance partner. Mark Twain, a renowned writer, but whose negative view of the Old Testament is well known, once said this about God of the Old Testament. God's act exposed his vindictive, unjust, ungenerous, pitiless, and vengeful nature constantly. He's always punishing, punishing trifling misdeeds with thousandfold severity. He's always punishing. And at the glimpse of what we read about in chapter 6, we kind of understand what Mark Twain is talking about, don't we not? Because the story begins with David, a king who establishing Jerusalem as his capital city, goes to get the Ark of the Covenant, and he takes 30,000 able men, not for the battle, but to guard the procession of the Ark to come. And that's what we read in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 at that. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him, from Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of the host who sits on the throne of the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahil, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahil went before the ark. And before we talk about what happens soon after this, what is the ark? Ark, again, is the rectangular box, not really that large, about four feet in length and a little over two feet in depth and width. It was constructed of wood and covered with gold, and this lid of solid gold was called the mercy seat. Two cherubim, angel-like figures at either end, framed the space around the central mercy seat from which God's word was honored. And in parts like Isaiah 66 and Psalm 132, it is seen as God's footstool. It's a place where God's Shekinah glory, a visible manifestation of God's glory, dwelled. It represented God's presence for the Israelites. And what a moment this is. This is a national celebration. The ark is coming back, coming to the place where it's supposed to be. A celebration was happening, rightly so. The people were excited about what is happening. King David was in charge. And at that moment of celebration, 
a shocking event happens, and Uzzah, the priest, dies on the spot. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the thrusting floor of Nacom, Uzzah put his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, but the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, this is Mark Twain moment, right? You're wondering, God, come on, man. Like, what's going on here? Like, we're doing this for you, right? The ark is coming, and we're all celebrating, and the oxen of all things, oxen, not human error, oxen, right? Stumbles, and also this poor guy stretches his arms, touches it, and you strike him dead on the spot? What a party pooper, right? A celebration turns into a funeral right then on the spot. Imagine the shock the people surrounding them is experiencing. And they all, and you might be probably wondering, what is God up to? This is not good enough? What is this about? Why would God do this? And it's important for us to remember the text gives us little clues of what is about to happen even before it happens. You see, Uzzah and Ahio are Kohathites. Kohathites are the tribe of Levites who are given the duty to guard the ark and to transport it. And in Numbers chapter 4, God gives explicit details on how to carry the ark. Meaning their whole existence as Kohathites, as Levites, Uzzah and Ahio were drilled from their birth on what it means to carry the ark. They were given, their job is mainly to carry the ark. And this is what it says in number chapter 4, what they should have known in their heart. This is a service of the son of Korath. In the tent of meeting, the most holy thing set apart. When the camp is to set out, when you're moving the ark, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And this is what it says. Then they shall put on it covering of ghost skin and spread on top of the cloth of all the blue and shall put in its poles. You know what that means? You carry the ark with its poles, wooden poles, and you carry the ark. But remember how the ark was transported in this chapter? And this is a clue that the writer is giving you. It says in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Samuel, and they carried the ark of God. You're like, yeah, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, I can't say the name, um, were driving the new cart with the ark. And notice again the emphasis the writer gives on a new cart. Driving the new cart. Any sound Levite listening to this story for the first time will be thinking, oh no. Oh no, what are they up to now? It's almost like, okay, something bad's gonna happen, right? Lost in the midst of all the celebration, something is going to happen. And if you remember what the Philistines did when they were sending back the ark, remember what they did? When their idols were shattered before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they're like, I, I don't wanna do this. Let's send it back. And what they did was they put the ark on the cart, 
and they just sent the cart away. Israelites should have known better. Notice what the Israelites are doing. Yes, they're putting in a new cart, but they're acting just like the Philistines. The God's people who have experienced the power of God, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, how it was powerful against the enemies. What they did was exactly what the Philistines did and put it on a cart and send it. Additionally, God warns them what happens if this happens. Notice what he says in Numbers again, later on verse 15, or chapter 15. It says, uh, verse 15, it says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishing of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. God explicitly tells them in Numbers chapter 4 that they will die if they touch it. So it is no wonder Uzzah falls to the ground to die once he stretches out his hands to grab the ark. It is something Uzzah, of all the people, the Kohathite, must have learned from early on. Not only of their duty, but even before, again, time and time again, Levites, they knew only once a year, the high priest, only the high priest, was able to go into the Holy of Holies. Not even to touch the ark, but to be in the presence of the ark. Only once a year, only the high priest. The other of all people should have known not to touch the ark. Furthermore, rather seeing the God as angry God here, the text also gives us grace of God here. Notice what it says in verse 6 of Numbers 4. Then they shall put on this covering of ghost skin and spread on top cloth of all that blue it shall put in its poles. And why is covering so necessary? Later in verse 20 again. But they shall not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. Again, you see, not only Uzzah's life was in danger here, but not by covering the ark. Imagine, entire party, 30,000 men, chosen man's life, even David was in danger by placing their eyes upon the uncovered bare ark, God's presence alone, they all could have died. Perhaps another way to say is, rather than God seeing God as a vindictive God, God gives warnings and even gracious to keep 30,000 men alive. Church, this is about God taking his holiness seriously. What David learns is that God is too hot to handle if he doesn't approach God the way God demands him to approach him. It's not the other way around. It's not David doing God a favor by bringing the ark back. What he learns is God is the one that is God and David is not. It's not about a set of rules that we have to follow. It's not to trivialize, trivialize God to the rule-following, rule-keeping maniacs. It's not about a story of legalism here. Rather, this emphasis on this rule of God, how to handle God's ark, is about God's holiness, God's character, the essence of who God is, what makes God God. His holiness, as we see again and again, demands you and I to conform to him, not the other way around. Not to make God into our idols, but for us to submit to the living God 
who demands all of our life. And how do you and I know that you and I approach God like that this morning? When we get mad, when we don't get our way. And for a brief moment, we see David go through that as well in verse 8. When we get mad, then we don't get our way. Church, I think we are also in danger of treating God the same way many times. How often do you and I actually approach God in submission to the Lord, saying, your way is my way. Oftentimes we approach God and say, God, I got a way that I think I should go. Actually, God, I have a plan that will prosper me, that will set me on the right path. Will you be on my side? Don't we often do that? We approach God with our own intent, our own desires, and we often treat God as if it's self-justifying, self-help guide, an inspiration. Oh, I need to feel good today by going to church, not coming with a humble submission. Sometimes we put God as a symbol to hold up and say, look, this is what I think I believe. A bumper sticker, an ornament at that. And we often turn around and often disregard what God teaches us in the scripture, what God guides us. Look no further than our past election. How often have you seen this many false theologians, right? Use God to justify their wishes. To say, this is God like this, therefore you must do this. And we bought into it, have we not? We want a Republican God. We want a Democrat God, right? As if God can be trivialized into a single issue or single party platform. Come on, church. Our God is much greater than that, much mightier than that, much holier than that. To trivialize God into a single party's platform. God is much greater and mightier. And when we realize that we want isn't what God wants, and we get a burn as a result when our toes are stepped on, how often, just like David, we get so angry, and we shake our fist at God and say, why, God, why are you doing this to me? Or perhaps you're angry because he's not working like a genie of a lamp to give you what you want, or perhaps, just perhaps, you realize how much you messed up and you're angry at yourself. And that anger soon turns into fear. Church, as simple as this, the question that we ought to wrestle is, are you dancing to the beat of God's drums? Or are you dancing on your own? You don't get to write the music, the Bible tells us. You're not the creator. You're the dancer. God is the choreographer. He gets to decide how you're going to dance and what kind of beat you're going to dance to. God is the one that gets to decide the way, the how, and why. And how often we treat like God like how he is our background dancer or our supporting actor. Church, He's too hot to handle unless you come to him with reverence, holy fear, submission, surrender heart. And the gospel invitation is very clear this morning. Are you ready to dance? Will you dance to the beat of God's drums this morning? Not only does David find that his God is too hot to handle if he doesn't approach him in the right way, he also finds that God may be too close to comfort for him. In this text. 
English, English uh, singer Sam Smith, a lot of you like him, once sang this line in his chart-topping, smashing hit, Too Good at Saying Goodbyes. Too Good at Goodbyes, actually. He says, I'm never going to let you close to me, even though you mean the most to me, because every time I open up, it hurts. So I'm never going to get too close to you, even when I mean the most to you, in case you go and leave me in the dirt. Might as well what David wrote after this happens, right? In the fear of what he sees happening, he realizes, wow, this is way too close for me to be comfortable. And he says, wait, I'm not going to mess around with this, so let me send it away for a little bit longer. And that's what happens in verse 8. And David was angry because of God, the Lord, had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means broken out against Uzzah. To this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's too close to comfort. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. Did you just realize what David did here? Like, you know what David did here? He basically saying, the king of Israel, man after God's own heart says, wait, that ark is too dangerous for me. Okay, let me give it to someone else. You take it. And let me step back for a while, and let me see what happens to you. Right? If something good happens to you, I'll take it back. But if you die, oh well. That's exactly what he does. He says, you take it. It's too close to comfort for me. But let me just keep it around me so that I feel comfortable. Let me gauge the temperature of this ark before I bring it back. So who is Obed-Edom here? The poor guy, right? Who's stuck with the ark. And why did he get chosen here? Here we find Obed-Edom is a Gittite. And that's a glimpse of what we get in his political identity to say he's from the region of Gath. But in a parallel account in 1 Chronicles, we get a little bit more information of who Obed-Edom is. Again, 1 Chronicles tells us he is son of Korah. His ethnic identity is a Levite. He's a priest in the branch of Kohath, his Kohathite. Again, his extended family of Uzzah. We also find that the Levitical tribe's duty, for his tribe's duty, is to be a gatekeeper, and his house will be at the very outside parts of Jerusalem. So therefore, it is right, that it is right there, at the right time, at the right moment, to take the ark. So what Obed-Edom does is to embrace what he's called to do. Now, not only to be a Levite, Kohathite, but someone that is a gatekeeper to embrace the ark carrying as what Kohathite, a Levite, is called to do. Here, a Levite is in contrast to Uzzah and even David, who faithfully carries out his role as a gatekeeper a guardian of holy things in the way God commands, him to do so. God commands him to do so. So what is the result of the faithfulness Obed-Edom displays here? Verse 11 tells us, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom all his household. So the Bible tells us God blesses him. And what is this blessing that God gives him? I think when we hear God blessing someone in our day and age, especially now, we often think wealth, health, prosperity, right? Even though we may say we don't really believe in that, as a culture, we often point to that direction and to say health, wealth, and prosperity as a blessed nation. That's why when we say America is most blessed nation in the world, why? 
Why do you think that? Just because you have a number of churches in our nation? No, we don't think about it like that. We think that America is the most blessed nation in the world because wealth, GDP, how comfortable your life is, right? We often say we don't want to be like the third, um, third world nation. We're blessed. I'm blessed, right? We talk about things like that. All our influence. But none of that is the marker for blessing for Obed-Edom. The blessing for Obed-Edom is listed in 1 Chronicles. Again, explicitly. It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 4, And Obed-Edom has sons, Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehoshaphat the second, Joah the third, Shachar the fourth, um, Nathaniel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Peluathai the eighth, for God blessed him. So here, the blessing for Obed-Edom is he gets eight sons. Right? And you may wonder, okay, for ancient Near Eastern culture, having son meant blessing, right? To have descendants like that, both material, status, and all that. Yes, that can be an indicator of the blessing here. But notice what it says further down the line, right? An indicator for blessing. In verse 15, this is what it says of the sons. Obed-Edom came out of the south, and to his sons was allotted the gatehouse. Obed-Edom is a national hero of sorts. Someone who took this Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and kept it. And for three months, after a national tragedy of Uzzah dying, is able to keep it, and God blesses him. For his blessing, God gives him eight sons. And for his blessing, guess what he gets? Gatehouse. And you're like, what? Shouldn't he be like a general or something? or a, some kind of high office, he gets to be the gatekeeper. And you remember Obed-Edom was a gatekeeper to begin with. So what the Bible is teaching us is Obed-Edom, his family is blessed for generations upon generations upon generations because he gets to be God's gatekeeper, the one he's supposed to be. And again, the Bible teaches us what it truly means to be blessed according to the word of the Lord. It's not health, wealth, prosperity, True blessing from the Lord is that you get to be who you are meant to be. You get to dance and to serve God as you stay close to him in the way that you're created. Obed-Edom is blessed as his eight sons faithfully carries out what God calls him to be, gatekeepers for generations upon generations upon generations. Church, how do you and I see your blessings this morning? How do you approach God with that desire of your heart, more often than not, we approach God with a desire for blessing, but also a fear of too close to comfort. We linger around God to get what we want. We get the blessing from the Lord and say, okay, I like that. I want some of that. I want some of that blessing that overflows from this. But once we get too close to God, and when God starts demanding a little bit more of my time, my talent, my treasures, we often say like, ooh, wait, a little bit too close, God. I don't, I don't mean that. Right, God, I want to follow you for the rest of my life, but not to the ends of the earth, to the end of Charlotte, North Carolina, right? God, I want, I want to give all that I have, but less than 10%. A little bit more. Okay, that's too much, God. God, all of me on Sunday from 10 to 11. Not Monday, Friday, not especially not in the afternoon times, not when I'm golfing, 
Not when I'm watching football. Come on, Lord. You know better. And we often approach God saying, ooh, not that. Ooh, what if God hurts me? And we often push God away. Church, what if he wants more of your time? What if he wants you to sacrifice to give? What if he is asking you to give up the second vacation home? Better yet, what if God wants your life, your witness, your dreams, your children? Do you say, surely not I, Lord, send them. Oh, how often we treat God like Hunger Games, right? God's asking for volunteers, and we're like, ooh, like him, like, not me. Let me, let me hide in the background. Let that guy do it, and then, all right, volunteer, right? We often treat God like Hunger Games to see, oh, he's going to take it for the Lord, or he's going to take it for the house, right? Take, take this for us. Everyone's looking around. You do it. You go. But guess what? God blesses the house of Edom, Obed-Edom, and that blessing means that he is faithfully carries out what God gets to be. He gets to be freed to do so. And that's God's invitation again for us this morning. I love our mission statement of our church because it says freeing people to enjoy God, to hear his truth, to grow in diverse community. To do what? So you get this dignity that only comes from Christ to engage the world. Basically, it's saying be free to live for the Lord. Be blessed according to the scripture. Be freed as you are created to be, but live for the Lord in the way God has called you to be to live for the Lord, to live out what you are called to be, that is what it means to be truly blessed. And if we really believe to be a follower of Christ is a blessing, that means you want to be free to live for the Lord. And when you get to be free to live for the Lord, you're truly blessed in the sight of the world, in sight of God. And again, the gospel invitation is absolutely clear for you and I. Will you dance to the beat of God's drums? Will you dance, church? to dance to the beat of God's drums, even if it costs all of your life, even if it's too close to comfort for you, even if it will cost you a lot to dance to his own drum beat, and not your own. The final lesson David learns is that not only God is too hard to handle, too close to comfort, but finally that God is too good to be true. Our God is too good to be true. And that's what we see in verse 12. And it was told to David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fat an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. The ark is coming home. Finally, in verse 13, we see that they do it the right way. They bore the ark. And later on, we see again in 1 Chronicles 15, that it's not 30,000 able-bodied men that goes to get it. If you read 1 Chronicles 15, it lists the names of the Levites. David, after failing, learns the right way, and gets the right guys, and gets the acacia pose, and put it in the ark, covers it, and brings the ark back. 
And every six steps that they take, the number of sacrificed animals to, again, emphasize the ark's importance and holiness, to set it apart, to say we are not worthy of this ark. Therefore, receive our sacrifice. We're not worthy of this ark. Receive our sacrifice. Notice, it doesn't matter how much, how long. It's about how God is to be treated. And David is so consumed by the moment, he's not even properly dressed as a king. But it does not matter. Right? Because his status as king is not the most important here. His status as a dancer is highlighted in this text. God is at the center of this dance, and David is consumed in it. What a joy it is to be consumed by God's grace like this. He's like a boy who gets to ask by the most popular person on the dance floor. A young child who is dancing to the beat of his mom's leading. This is the dance he gets to dance. And you know what it says in First Chronicles again, talking about how the ark comes back? This is grace, church. If you think the Old Testament doesn't teach grace, this is it. First Chronicles 15.26. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Might as well say God brought the Levites and who helped the Levites to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They sacrificed seven bulls and seven lambs. So this dance, even this dance, church, this worship is not possible apart from God's grace. And it's possible because God allows his ark to be transported back. And throughout the history of how ark of the covenant has been moving, now the Israelites know God does not need 30,000 able-bodied men to guard it. God doesn't need people to fight for it. In fact, God will fight for it himself. After all, ark made it all the way back from the Philistines on its own. Anyhow, God does not need a fancy carrying equipment like a cart, no matter how shiny and nice it may be. You don't need to add to that. You don't need to add your own theology, your thoughts to it. No matter what he says, the ark simply needed God's people to simply do and obey as they were told. That's why it is better to obey than to sacrifice. The ark simply asked one to trust in God's way of doing things, and fully surrender in it. God demands your life of obedience. And if that is not a gospel message, I don't know what it is. And God will install his kingdom, and God will allow the worship to go on. And church, this is the grace of the Lord. His invitation to dance. The question is, will you dance to the beat of God's drums this morning? Will you dance to the beat of God's drums this morning? Going back to the story of my first dance on the wedding floor, as I conclude, how did I do in the wedding dance? I know all of you had high hopes for me. Oh, yes, you could ask my wife about how I did. But you know what? In that moment, as I was going to the dance floor with all the eyes looking at me, I realized at that moment, no one was looking at me. <laughs> they were actually looking at my wife. Not only so, the moment I stretched out my hands to hold hers, rather, she held my nervous, sweaty hands in her, in her hands. 
I wasn't dancing alone, right? I wasn't dancing alone or dancing at all, I realized. It didn't matter how I was doing. It surely wasn't me that was dancing or my body would have moved the way it did on the dance floor. I tried in my best way in how I was created, but that was not what it was about. And here she was, my bride, way too hot of a person to be marrying me. And I saw that in the eyes of many people. Why her and him, right? Way too close to my personal life to see all my flaws, all my failures, but not only wanting to dance with this messed up person, but to cry, to mourn, to laugh, until death do us apart. And ultimately, as my gaze was fixated upon her, she was leading me on this dance floor with the rest of the people that were there in full agreement. I thought, and we all thought, she's way too good to be true for him. And here she was, wanting to dance. And guess what? I simply followed. In her steps, in her lead, I found my neutral pelvis that I didn't think I had. I stretched out my hands to hold hers, moved left and right to the sound of the music, but more importantly, as she gracefully guided me through the dance floor, I danced a dance to remember for my lifetime. The song that we danced to, I Won't Give Up On Us. I Won't Give Up On Us. Church, what David realizes in this story is not that his dance matters as much as he thinks. <laughs> it matters because this is God's invitation for David to dance. God is coming home. And David, in response, gets to dance with God. And even despite David's failure the first time, God will not give up on him. God will choose to be with David. God will establish his kingdom. He will be covenanted to David as long as he is the king and for the rest of his life. In church, our God is calling us to dance, a dance to remember of your lifetime. And he isn't dancing, and he isn't asking you to dance alone. He isn't asking you to be the perfect dancer even this morning. He's not asking you to make sure your moves are all correct. He simply says, will you dance to the beat of my drums and dance in the way I'm leading you, even if it costs you everything, including your life, your family, even your fortunes. And the scripture reminds us that this path that God takes, the Ark of the Covenant take, later on, as the scripture, the story of the gospel continues on. There's another path, the very presence of God. The God incarnate, Son of God, takes. And the path he blazes is path to the cross. And the very presence, very person of God dies on the cross. Path to the Calvary so that you and I could dance this dance of a lifetime for the rest 
of our life and eternity. This is the gospel. Shall we dance for the Lord? Church, join with me as we dance in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's pray. And if you're not dancing with God this morning, um, as you, you have not placed your faith in Christ, this is God's invitation for you to dance with Him. Stop dancing alone. Come join Him. And if you're a follower of Christ, your life is called to live and dance for Him. Let's commit ourselves, shall we? Let's commit to dance for Him to the beat of God's drums. Father, we pray so many times we think we know what's best for us. And we have bought into false theology. We have bought into false narrative. And we have bought into this false hope of thinking that we could do this on our own or someone else can do this for me. But the scripture reminds us again and again, Father, that you are too hot to handle on our own. You are too close to comfort apart from your grace. And you're too good to be true for people like us. So we come in full surrender in our hopes to confess our sins and to say, Lord, we want to dance the beat of your drums. Teach us what it means to surrender. Teach us what it means to let go. And teach us what it means to live as you have created us to be, to be free, to hear your truth, to live in this diverse community, to receive the dignity that comes from you and you alone so we can re-engage the world with the gospel hope that only you gives us. May that be true in our lives, in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.